0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll take a look at one of my favorite art forms, zines. We'll talk with Susie Kelly, who's been making zines for more than 20 years. She talks about how DIY publishing can connect people in unexpected ways.
1: Maybe a kid in California finds an Appalachian zine and decides to move to Appalachia.
0: (laughs) And West Virginia singer and songwriter, John R. Miller, brings us up to speed on his new album, a lot has changed in his life in the last few years.
2: I think I stuck the landing a little bit, you know. As much a su- surprise to me as I'm sure it was to anybody else, but I, you know, still here, so that's good enough.
0: <laughs> also, there's a new edition of a guidebook that lists climbing routes in the New River Gorge. We'll talk with the climber who challenged the climbing community to rename racist and sexist route names, and one, I teared up
3: because knowing that we made significant change, like,
0: no other person will feel the pain that we felt. You'll hear these stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today we're listening to an encore episode about creative people across Appalachia, and how they're starting businesses and changing narratives about our region through art, storytelling, and even self-published zines. What's a zine? Well, we'll get to that. But first, let's start with an update of a story we originally heard in 2020. For the past couple of years, rock climbers have been taking on racist, sexist, and other offensive route names in the New River Gorge. One of the people we interviewed was DJ Grant, a black climber who helped kickstart the effort to change the names. We were climbing at this
3: route, this wall, and there was a route called Tigger. Yeah, it had another Tigger in the Morgan, hard pipe hitting Tiggers, uh, which are both plays on the N-word, and like, I was really offended by it. I was really taken. Like, It it was the first time that I realized that something like a name could ruin my entire day. Like, I didn't want to go anywhere close to that wall. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to look at it. It was just like... It was so offensive and so hurtful.
0: These offensive names were found throughout the gorge. I'm not going to say what they are. The routes and the pioneering climbers who made them are recorded in a two-volume guidebook called New River Rock, which contains about 3,000 rock climbing routes in the gorge and surrounding areas. Last year, DJ Grant and others asked the New River Alliance of Climbers to change some of those route names to get rid of racist and offensive language. Well, a new edition of the book was published over the summer. Reporter Zach Harrell checked in with Grant on the latest.
4: DJ, for those that might not have heard the first story, can you talk to us a little bit about the issues that arose in the New River Gorge climbing community last year?
3: So last year, um, a group of climbers and myself were really upset about the names that were in the New River Guidebook. Some of the names were racist, misogynistic, homophobic, sexist, and just downright offensive. And so we reached out to NRAC, the New River Alliance of Climbers, to ask them if they could fix it. And they were mostly on board with helping us fix it.
4: So once you had brought up this issue to them, a procedure was created to go about having these names changed. Can you describe what that process was? we reached out to the community. We asked the community, we usually asked the demographic that we
3: thought would be offended by these names. And whenever consensus was drawn that, hey, these names were offensive, we brought it on the table. We reached out to the first ascensionists and asked them if they were willing to change the names.
4: I remember you explaining that to me for the first story, how in the rock climbing community, it's traditionally been the first person to successfully climb out the first ascensionist in the lingo, uh, who's been allowed to name the routes. And it's so interesting to me that you guys went to them first, gave them first dibs at renaming these routes, because one, it preserves the legacy of these folks, and two, it allows them to right the wrongs that they created by naming these routes offensive things. So how did it go? Did the first ascensionists agree to change the names?
3: Um, we got all the names we wanted to get changed changed. Yeah. It was a success.
4: It is amazing. Um, because there are so many areas of our culture where, you know, a a minority group of people says, this is offensive. This brings up bad things for me and I don't like it. And so many times the other side is so entrenched in tradition or whatever that they just refuse to change. And, And here, Even the people that were the old guard, you know, the people that were there in the beginning, they were willing to say, "Okay, I see what you mean. Let's move forward.
3: They were more willing to help us when we explained that you're not racist. We understand that times have changed, that you're um, you're helping us and your
4: legacy will stay there. If you pick up the book and and if somebody's coming to this and they don't know any of this backstory, is there anything that would let them know the work that you and others there at NRAC put into removing these uh, offensive names?
3: There is a excerpt in the book that says what we did and why we did it. It's just um, telling the next generation that we had these hard conversations so you didn't have to. We... We fought for change change wasn't a right it was something that we fought for it was something that we did for you it was something that we did because we love you
4: have there been other changes to the God Book that makes it more inclusive yeah that's the best part
3: not only have have the names been changed but now there's more representation there's pictures of black and brown climbers There's pictures of female climbers there's pictures of not only white climbers but asian black brown like all shapes and sizes on the walls is no longer a white man's book it's everybody's book it's everyone's sport
4: have you got your copy yet i have my copies yes what was that experience like flipping through for the first time it
3: honestly the book was so light because it was free of so much hate like no pain no whatever like I teared up because knowing that we made significant change, like no other person will feel the pain that we felt.
4: There are two volumes to the New River Climbing Guide. This was volume two. Are you guys working on volume one now? I assume there are names in that volume that also probably merit changing.
3: Um, Volume one, we have reached out to a lot of first ascensionists. A lot of the first ascensionists are on board with the name changes as well.
4: Do you have any idea when the first edition might go back to press? It's
3: going to be a while unless the public does a, a push for a new reprint, but let's not do that because it'll put a lot of pressure on us to do a lot of work.
4: Those tight deadlines are uh, are brutal. I understand. Well, DJ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you so much for the work you and the rest of uh, NRAC are, are doing to make the Gorge a more uh, inclusive and, and welcoming place.
0: On behalf of NRAC, thank you so much. That was DJ Grant, one of the rock climbers pushing to change offensive route names in West Virginia's New River Gorge. He was speaking with reporter Zach Harold. The first time Zach interviewed him, Grant said he didn't think he'd ever be able to climb the offensively named routes, even if they were renamed. It would be too painful. But Grant says that since then, he's actually climbed some of the renamed routes. He hopes future climbers of color will also fall in love with the New River Gorge. Singer and songwriter John R. Miller grew up in West Virginia's eastern panhandle in a small town called Hedgesville. He's gotten pretty well known here and has even performed on West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage a few times. Now, he's got a new album out. It's called Depreciated. This is his third album and it's gained international attention. He's been featured in Spin Magazine and on official Spotify playlists like Emerging Americana and Fresh Folk. He moved to Nashville to further pursue his career. And it was during this transitional time he wrote most of the songs on Depreciated. But the mountain state is never far from his mind.
2: I love West Virginia dearly. It's, uh, I'm I'm always kind of trying to plot how to get back, you know?
0: (laughs) Miller spoke with Caitlin Tan about the songs on his new album, they started with the song, Shenandoah Shakedown, which is set in the Shenandoah Valley, where he grew up.
5: There's a crack in the altar, pale light through the break, like crooked teeth. And I couldn't falter, knowing what was at stake.
6: It feels like you're kind of telling the story of, of a romance or a love through the imagery of the Shenandoah, can you kind of walk us through it a little bit?
2: Yeah, um, the song is definitely framing the dissolution of a relationship through kind of a series of vignettes that were maybe a little uh, psychedelically influenced. uh, um, And definitely spent a lot of my 20s just sort of hanging around there. And I think a lot of those memories sort of came Came back to me as I was sort of processing um, that series of events, and I don't know. It's it's definitely sort of sort of hazy at this point. I think maybe I was just trying to get it down for myself, and then it just sort of ended up on on a record.
5: Fights of temporal effects, in the vein, Loosen the coil, and if I could find a use. Things I cannot help do. I might
6: one day home. Did you anticipate this song being the biggest hit from the record, or was it a surprise to you?
2: Yeah, pretty pretty surprising actually. I kind of felt like maybe it wasn't I mean, I don't know anything about anything. I thought that maybe <laughs> that was not that one wouldn't um, necessarily be you know, an immediately accessible sort of song. There's no chorus or anything, you know. It it's, feels kind of broken to me. I was definitely surprised that people seem to pick up on that one more so than a lot of the other ones, which is cool. I'm, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by that.
5: And the wolves are closing in The blood runs cold and thin And the moon shines bright as long
6: So then with your most recent album, you shifted from being an independent artist to then being signed on by Concord, which is a pretty big music publishing company based in Nashville. First of all, congratulations. But was that a hard decision to make for you?
2: Um, it, it definitely took some thought, you know. I'm in my mid-30s now, and I've been pretty DIY my my whole life. I just saved up from touring to make the record and did it with some, some close friends that I'd wanted to work with for a while. And, um, you know, once we were done with the record, they actually heard it somehow and, and contacted us.
6: So another song from the album Old Dance Floor, that one really stood out to me, and I really loved it. And it kind of, on first listen, I heard almost this, like, crumbling of, of like, a relationship or maybe just, like, a fling. Um, you say, I need something to hold on to. I swear I thought it was you. But then also on second listen, I also felt like there was a hint of kind of just, generally needing a, a new start or a fresh break in life. Uh, walk me through that song.
2: Yeah, that one That one definitely came around the time that I was moving and I sort of, I guess looking for a, a life preserver in some ways. By the time I moved, I was, I was kind of drinking a lot and had been on the road for a while and was really just kind of spinning wheels and kind of trying to look outside myself maybe to other people for, Help, help me out or save me or whatever you know for lack of a better term and <laughs> didn't really find that that was the way to go about it. On, but
5: he don't come back on.
2: That song definitely came from just trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing or what I wanted to be doing and and how I was going to go about that, things that i had never really considered in the sort of drunken haze of my 20s, you know.
5: It's the last call at the bar, divine, Spitting your beer, piss in your wine, Slip out the door and down the line,
6: So between your, um, last album in 2018 to then this album, a lot of, it sounds like a lot of those kind of like life changes have happened and like changes in the direction you want to move forward.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think I stuck the landing a little bit, you know, as, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as much as a su- surprise to me as I'm sure it was to anybody else, but I, I, you know, still here, uh, So that's good enough.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's talk about Faustina. Um, Another pretty big hit. I was just looking on Spotify and it has nearly half a million streams. The name is really clever. And just in case any of our listeners don't know, the name comes from a Polish Roman Catholic nun and mystic, St. Faustina. Tell us a little bit about this song.
2: I feel like the song may have been poorly named because it it didn't end up being about that saint so much as about, um, you know, kind of traveling. And and it's sort of a, a rumination on addiction, really. Okay, so I sort of grew up in a Catholic household. That was definitely something that I sort of got out of pretty early in life but i was always kind of fascinated by different religions and you know so-called mystics within different religions and and uh people who had had what i would consider to be maybe psychedelic experiences that weren't chemically induced you know yeah things that someone may consider a, a bona fide um spiritual experience and and uh i thought that her story was really really fascinating to me um but the song uh, it it's sort of just dovetailed with that kind of kind of quitting drinking and and searching for for some kind of common thread
5: I've had friends and I've let my friends down looking for my heart in the lost and found bare hands tried to stop the rain from pouring
2: I think I wrote that song after I had stopped drinking for you know, just a few days, and I was still kind of going through some withdrawal stuff. It's hard to, it's hard to kind of put into conversational words, but...
5: (laughs)
6: you nervous at all with getting sober for that time like would you still be able to write songs
2: uh yeah I I think I just kind of written in that mode for so long that I was ready for it to either dry up um no pun intended or uh (laughs) you know find some new perspective it's uh that was just a thing that really needed to happen and um I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd be here if, if it didn't, and uh, I'm I'm definitely writing from a place of much much more clarity these days.
6: Well, John, anything you want to say to any West Virginians back home?
2: <laughs> well, I uh, I miss you, and I and I and I'm looking forward to seeing my friends and family real soon.
6: Well, John, thank you for talking today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Caitlin. I appreciate it.
5: I thought I was a traveler I was only a little unspooled
0: I come back home In the second half of our show, we'll hear about the vibrant world of zines. Self-made magazines filled with art and stories you'll never see or read anywhere else. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back.
5: I was waiting for a reason to drop in and sound the alarm. I read tomes of ancient secrets that seemed to sparkle
7: on the page. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: Near the Tennessee-Virginia border, you'll find Appalachia's tri-cities, Bristol, Kingsport, and Johnson City, Tennessee. The biggest of the three is Johnson City, which is home to nearly 70,000 people. It's a cultural hub with East Tennessee State University and a thriving art scene. It's also home to the Johnson City Zine Fest. A zine, in essence, is a self-published magazine. A zine can be big and glossy, but it's a lot more likely to be produced by an individual person, often handwritten and made on a photocopier with the paper folded and stapled, Artist and designer Susie Kelly has been making zines for more than half her lifetime. I met her when she was still producing her first scene, Twig Mama, out of a tiny community at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She eventually moved to Florida, where she went to a couple of zine fests and got all fired up again. So when she moved to Johnson City several years ago, she asked, why not have a zine fest here too?
1: There was a coffee shop downtown called The Willow Tree that I really loved. So I went to Terry at the coffee shop and said, Hey, I have this idea. I know it sounds a little weird. You might not know what it means, but here's here's what I'm thinking. And I think I brought a few zines to show her. And she was like, well, I don't know what this is, but I trust you and yeah, we can do that. And years later, she said to me one day that it was one of her favorite events
8: that she held at the, at the coffee house.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of folks from Asheville come up and uh, you know then with their zines and some folks from Chattanooga um, Boone um, and of course Johnson City and areas around here
0: that's like Appalachian zines though yeah so but it's what, not
1: limited to that yeah I wouldn't say that it's limited to that
0: so what was the vibe like I mean Should the, the first one was it? really
1: tiny there were only maybe 10 to 12 people doing tables well, this is one I pulled. This is one of the first ones I pulled this morning, and it's the Willow Tree employees. So everyone who worked at the Willow Tree picked a page and did their own their own artwork or a little comic painting. Here's a recipe for dill pickles.
0: Yeah, what? What's? The, can you read the title? Read the cover.
1: Says, so "Follow me to the Willow Tree: Collections from the Dream Keepers, Volume One."
0: Susie Kelly spent her youth in upstate New York, in a rural community not all too different from places in Appalachia. She had just moved away from home to spend a summer in Northampton, Massachusetts, when she was given a copy of Comet Bus. It's a lot of people's first scene. It was mine, too. Comet Bus has been produced since the early 80s. It documents stories from the San Francisco Bay punk subculture through handwritten diaries and artwork. It fell into the hands of readers like Susie, all the way on the other side of the country. So you're looking at basically, I would describe it as what, like an 8.5 by 11, mimeographed, folded over and stapled. Yep. Publicated. How many pages are in that? Let's see,
1: 45, 50 maybe?
0: It's pretty big. How did you find that?
1: A friend gave it to me, but I can't remember his name. I think his name was Dave. And I had no idea what zines were. And it was kind of magical to me because... I don't know if I had ever been in any bookstores with any. I hadn't seen anyone exchange them. So it was kind of this this new thing. Um, just a summer in Northampton, hanging out. And that's when I decided to sort of document my experiences in Northampton for that summer. And that's when I created my first zine. So immediately after I found one, I was like, I have to try this.
0: You were drawing by then, right? You'd, you'd been drawing like Growing up.
1: Yeah, much, I, right. I was drawing since I was very little. And my dad worked for Kodak, so I was really into photography for that reason. The freezer was always full of film, so I was always taking photographs. And um, I really started to pull my photographs and art together for some of these early zines that I was making.
0: The first zine Susie made was called Twig Mama. She describes it as a per zine or personal zine. It was essentially a diary. A way to process or move away from home.
1: I would say that this is this was my like first big adventure as like a young adult, where I was headed off to this town that I knew very little about. I didn't have a lot of friends there. I just needed to get out of my hometown and sort of experience something new. So a lot of these stories in here are stories of this town that I'm exploring. Um, I interview the neighbors next door. Um, sorry about the podi. I make a little comic about a job I had cleaning horse stalls at a local farm, Um, best swimming spots. So, the cover is a photocopied uh, picture of my face. I actually put my face on the photocopier to do this one. Um, I'm not sure how safe that is to look into those (laughs) lights, but... It's also your hand. Yeah, my hand rolls over onto the front from the, the back panel. But these are crazy to look at now because it's so different from what I've done in the past, you know, 10 years. And I don't have a lot of my sketchbooks from that time period, but I do have these original zines, which is kind of
9: cool.
0: Susie made six issues of Twig Mama, including several in Farum, Virginia, on the eastern edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. About eight years ago, she moved to Sarasota, Florida, and went to Zine Fest in Tampa and St. Petersburg. There, she met whole communities of zine makers. We're pushing the form in different directions. She got inspired to start a new zine called Girls and Thieves. She describes it as an art book, and it showcases Susie's talents as a professional designer. What is it about the medium that grabs people, you think?
1: I think it has a lot to do with sort of the boom of the internet and like everyone getting a blog and everyone getting an Instagram, everyone having their Facebook, and it's like a nice little break from that world going back to like analog work and not having the pressure of how many likes or um, how many views, how many comments, you get to just have this like almost childlike reaction where you're just going to create something and not care what anyone thinks, you know, <laughs> And I think that's my favorite part about zines. But at least they have these lives that are, like, beyond you that you might not even know about. Like, maybe a, a kid in California finds an Appalachian zine and decides to move to Appalachia. <laughs> or vice versa, you know? Yeah. Um, you may never know the path that that zine has after it leaves your hands.
0: Last year, because of the pandemic, the Johnson City Zine Fest had to be canceled and the Willow Tree House closed down. This year, Susie worked with a professor at East Tennessee State University to line up a new venue and reschedule the Zine Fest, but the resurgence of COVID-19 caused them to cancel again. Susie says she'll keep making zines either way. To learn more about zines and how to make them, go to our website, wvpublic.org. Blinko Glass is based in Milton, West Virginia. At the beginning of the pandemic, the company took a huge hit and had to lay off nearly all of its employees. But thanks to a federal loan and some clever marketing, they've rehired almost everyone back and had one of their most profitable years in decades. Blinko's comeback involved a collaboration with a graphic design artist based in Morgantown. Liz Pavlovic is regionally known for their creations focusing on cryptids. Mythical characters like Bigfoot, Mothman, and the Flatwoods Monster, a West Virginia cryptid that's thought to be green with a fiery red head. My co-host Caitlin Tan spoke with reporter Molly Bourne about this story. Bourne wrote an article for the Washington Post called How a Mythical Backwoods Monster Saved a Struggling West Virginia Glass Company.
10: So how are all these things kind of connected? So there's a 20-something guy working at Blanco. He got the job shortly before the pandemic began last year. He was a fan of Liz's work, and there was talk of introducing a cryptid series as a way to continue to sell glass to a different subset of buyers, right? Like that, you know, people may have associated glass with something, Blanco glass and, and other glass companies across the region as something that maybe their grandmother had. Um, I remember seeing Blanco in my grandmother's house growing up, right? So he was a fan of Liz's work and contacted them on Instagram and said, hey, like, there's talk of maybe doing this cryptid series. Like, would you be interested? And this, this young man, Alex, made the connection. That brought Liz to Blanco, where they use an existing design that had been—I think it was an old decanter uh, or some piece from, you know, so I don't even know when it was from. But uh, and Liz was—he sort of drew inspiration from those designs and their own work to come up with this this next iteration of the Flatwoods Monster.
6: And what's really wild is, I, I guess, just the numbers. I mean, it was a really popular item.
10: Yeah, they sold a bunch. They had a limited run, but they did you know, exhaust that run really quickly. And now they're thinking about what might be the next monster in the series. Although Liz is just finished up a West Virginia Day piece that's an ode to the ramp. So that's pretty cool that is cool yeah so they're still working with with Blanco Blanco um, the whole idea uh, that was that has been kicked around was is there a way to work with West Virginia artists to combine their talents with the talents of these lifers at Blanco and there are so many talented people there I first went there in 2019 and was just really struck by how these these artisans just, have this dedication to a craft that they have perfected over some of them decades and it's a really special place you know they generally do tours there you can even go in in the hot shop that's what they call it where the um, glass is actually made And, and sometimes they'll let you try your hand at it there's just so much support for learning, you know, it's something like these guys know how to make this stuff, but it's not something they don't want to share. In fact, they do want to share and they are eager to to have people in learning about it.
6: And I wonder, just generally speaking, um, other West Virginia businesses, I wonder if this could be kind of a model of how to move forward, like collaborating with another West Virginia based business or try, trying to market to the younger generation or working with a fellow artist. I I'm just I'm just thinking out loud here if if post covid if that might be a clever business model.
10: Yeah, I mean, Blanco back in the day the company had an in-house designer and then for years uh, it didn't. And I believe it was in 2017. They hired these two, uh, two designers, Andrew Schaefer and Emma Walters. I think it's important to mention them because they just came up with some really creative designs. Their expertise was in architectural lighting and other art glass designs. And they just had some very creative pieces. And I think, just um, I think I mentioned in the piece that excitement about having an in house designer again kind of drummed up excitement about you know, Blanco being on an upward trajectory, especially after the bankruptcy that they experienced. But Emma and Andrew moved out west and left Blanco last year. And and so I think they were the company was looking for another way to to solicit designs and to to come up with fresh stuff um with existing talent in the state. And there is a lot of talent here. I don't have to tell you. I know it's like it's such a yeah, there is a lot. There are a lot of amazing artists here, and then, so yeah, I think like Blanco's story is so interesting. You know, they've, they've been they've been in their Milton location for a hundred years, and whenever I first saw news of the pandemic, like they weren't too far from my mind. That place just really, it's a really special place. It just kind of sticks with you. Um, The the guys that make this glass are just so warm and funny and and quirky. They make glass in a way that not too many places do anymore. And, you know, the mold for the Flatwoods Monster, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, it was made by the um, master craftsman who, using a mallet and chisel, carved it out of a piece of local wood, you know, just really like... (sighs) <sighs> Those sort of details, I think, are what make it so distinctive.
0: That was freelance reporter Molly Bourne. We've posted a link to her article for The Washington Post on our website, wvpublic.org. Mitzi Sennett is a playwright, dancer, and educator who was born in Huntington, West Virginia, She identifies as mixed race. Eventually, she left home and became known as one of the country's best speakers on diversity and inclusion. While in New York City, she launched a multimedia arts company called All Here Together Productions. Eventually, she decided to move home to Appalachia, and she brought her company with her. Reporter David Atkins spoke with Mitzi Sennett about her story.
7: What was happening in your life when you made the decision to leave for New York City?
9: So I had already been traveling to train with dance masters in Columbus, Ohio. So as a high schooler, I was driving myself to Columbus, Ohio twice a week. It was pretty clear at that point what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to become a professional dancer. Both my parents are Appalachian successful performing artists. And both of them had aspirations of doing more work outside of here. So when I decided at 16, they say, that was the moment I was like, okay, I really want to do this professionally. Russell High School in Russell, Kentucky actually takes their senior class for a week to New York City and Washington, D.C. Teachers were so amazing. They let me take dance class outside of the tour that was scheduled.
7: What made you change your career from a dancer to an educator?
9: For a year, I was like, mom, I want to go to Los Angeles. I want to do music videos. I moved to Los Angeles for a year after one year at FIT, and really quickly signed with one of the top agencies in Los Angeles for dancers. And like within two months, I totally ripped my Achilles tendon. There were jobs available for dance teachers in public schools in Manhattan. The position of director of the extended day program at School of the Future became available. And I had worked there for a year part time. Their director, Samantha Vincent, Who, by the way, is Vin Diesel's sister. She was like, Mitzi, I think you could be the next director. I'm leaving to go to Los Angeles. What motivated
7: you to start All Here Together Productions? And what motivated you to write the play Snapshot, which is based on your father and your life in Appalachia?
9: The protest in New York City about the US invasion of Iraq, it really instigated something in me where I was already thinking about war and the ridiculousness. Of war and not having a real purpose other than destroying families, communities, nations. So, all here together productions expanded to community work and doing this self reflective and always thinking about culture, race, ethnicity, and you know, violence, etc. My story using it as a way to sound off about who we are, where do we want to be in the future? Like, what are our wounds? What are our pains? What might be holding us? And who do we want to become in the future? So All Here Together Productions started about national and international interactions, like from the start.
7: When did you start shifting your attention toward the region?
9: In early 2016, the United Way River Cities was beginning to plan their approach to a grant that was called Together We Rise. The United Way nationally wanted to see if their organization could somehow have conversations around racism and dismantling racism because of the murder of the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina and the church there. So I was asked to come on. Sandra Clements had recommended to Laura Gilliam that I participate. They had already some community leaders coming together to design what a town hall might look like around racism. They were really nervous about having conversations about racism. And I said, what I'm suggesting we do is use art as a way to sort of break up the tension first, create a place for understanding and common ground before we start to get into the conversation. And so I was able to apply that all here together style to what United Way River Cities wanted to accomplish with their town hall. So I wrote a short play that had community members performing, and that's how we opened up the first United Way River Cities. Together We Rise with a play. The actors were sitting amongst the over 250 people that showed up in Huntington. I'm so grateful for Huntington, the folks in Huntington who have allowed me to be part of their processes.
7: Presently, Carmen Mitzi Sinnott and All Here Together Productions are working on a project to bring artists together from around the nation to paint murals in Huntington's Fairfield District. The murals are planned to be painted in the spring of 2022. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm David Atkins.
0: Asheville, North Carolina is known for its vibrant music scene. It's a destination for touring musicians, but it's home to a thriving local scene, too. Anchored by record stores, small venues, and house shows, the Smoky Mountain Sirens were formed by three women who'd played in multiple Asheville bands and decided to try something new. Blue Ridge Mountain Radio's Matt pikin has their story.
10: We're the Smoky Mountain Sirens from right here in Asheville. Yeah. Hear the sirens, hear the
11: The three women of the Smoky Mountain Sirens all had other things happening in music when they came together in 2019, they started, like a lot of bands, covering other artists' songs in local bars.
10: It was like, wow, oh God, yeah, I just felt like-, like selling your souls for a while.
11: But with the pandemic, guitarist Amy Jacob Oliver, bassist Ashley Rose, and drummer Eliza Hill committed to writing and moving forward with their own songs. And with the return of live shows, the Sirens have become one of Asheville's most talked about newer bands. They filled the parking lot last Friday for an outdoor show at Fleetwoods. Oh, that's so broken, With Oliver and Rose sharing lead vocals, the sirens are reminiscent of the riot girl sounds of Sleater Kinney. Oliver said she feels more inclined to write socially charged lyrics for the sirens than she does in the more established surf punk band she plays in called Harriers of Discord, in which she is the only woman.
10: I try really hard not to single myself out as like a woman, I try not to sexualize myself, but I really want to have a voice for people that are growing up. And I just see a lot of people kind of trampling over women trying to speak out, and we're not done with that fight yet, and I want to be a part of it.
11: For Rose, who has performed alone as a singer-songwriter since her teens, living out her alter ego through the Smoky Mountain Sirens is both a long-held dream and one she held herself back from.
10: The whole reason I wanted to start a band and do all that is because I was playing acoustic covers, like request-based stuff, for almost 17 years, and I, I was just burnt out. Always wanted to be in like a really intense, fun band where I can relate to everything and write what I want to write and play what I want to play. And I never had that.
11: Hill played drums for 10 years in the Asheville funk rock band Andrew Scotchy and the River Rats. She first formed the Smoky Mountain Sirens with Rose, who knew Oliver from working together at a local musical instrument store.
10: Amy wrote a bunch of cool like anthemic punk songs about conversations that we've all had and experiences that we've all had and issues that we all share and we all liked it and identified with it.
11: As it happens so often in Nashville's music scene, each member of the trio is actively involved in other musical projects, including another band they're all part of called Bombay Gasoline. But in their quick life as the Smoky Mountain Sirens, they see an avenue for their future they haven't otherwise experienced.
10: We all have a we lot did. in common, but we're all really different. Really different. It actually took a lot of work. Yeah. Like we've actually gone through a lot as a band, like personally, socially, musically to like yeah. get to the point where we are now. And I consider us in a place of like still building that. Oh, oh, no,
0: no Matt Pikin originally reported that story for BPR News this past summer. For our final story, we're going to stay in Western North Carolina. Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle is a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina. In late 2020, she published her first novel, called Even As We Breathe. It's a mystery of sorts, set at an upscale mountain resort. And as great books always do, it calls us to think hard about the world around us. NPR's Ned Ullaby visited Clapsaddle near Cherokee, North Carolina. The Kuala Boundary is not technically
8: a reservation, but everyone around here calls it one. Its main town, Cherokee, brings in tourists with a casino, moccasin stores, and an old-fashioned gift shop owned by the family of Annette Bird Sanuk Clapsaddle. She grew up helping out, selling stuff like t-shirts, dreamcatchers, and wind chimes.
12: Definitely my first job, spent a lot of times behind that counter right there.
8: Clapsaddle has short auburn hair, dimples to die for, and gem-like blue eyes. On one side, she's white Appalachian, on the other, Cherokee. Her ancestors escaped the Indian Removal Act of 1830. About a hundred years later, her grandfather decided to start a business.
12: And he built a trading post just down here. And this is actually the entrance to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park.
8: As a kid, Clapsaddle would swim in the O'Connell River and explore the red maple, yellow birch forests. Then off she went to Yale University in grad school and worked as a tribal preservationist. Clapsaddle's novel is set during World War II. It's called Even As We Breathe. It's, you know, bizarre to have a book
12: called Even As We Breathe when we're now making sure we don't breathe on anyone.
8: Clapsaddle <laughs> obviously wrote her book pre-COVID. It takes place at a fancy North Carolina resort-turned-detention camp for valuable prisoners of war. Her main character works there as a groundskeeper. He's a teenage boy from the reservation named Kelly.
12: County is accused of being involved in the disappearance of a diplomat's daughter, so he moves back and forth from Cherokee, trying to prove his innocence and also unravel his uh, pretty complicated family history.
8: Even as we breathe, brims with nuances specific to this history, this place, and this tribe. From the smell of pine sap and sourwood to the hymns sung in Cherokee at the Reservation Methodist Church.
12: Une na a u a g iga guya ona. That's the first part of it. I grew up in a Methodist church on the Kuala Boundary, and that is one of the songs that we sung every Sunday. That is the song that when I die will need to be sung at my funeral.
8: Clapsaddle's grandmother taught her that hymn. For the past 10 years, she's taught English and Cherokee studies at a local high school that's 30% native. With this novel, Clapsaddle was determined to write characters her high school students might know in real life. Students like Colby Taylor.
11: I was very, very
4: happy to read something that I could identify with almost completely.
8: Taylor is now a freshman at the Honors College at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he loves authors like Ralph Ellison and Sherman Alexie. When he read Even As We Breathe, Taylor was amazed to find himself immersed in such specific details of Cherokee culture.
11: We were a matriarchal society, so like, we would get our clans from our mothers.
4: We would get our last names from our mothers. They're special. These are special things.
12: For me, that's it. That's what I set out to do, is to give my students a story.
8: Annette *The new clapsaddle was incredibly moved, she said, by a text Colby Taylor sent after reading her novel.
12: He said, "People just don't write about people like us." And didn't expect to get choked up on that one.
8: That review is Annette Bird's and New Clapsaddle's favorite. It means even more to her than the review from Publishers Weekly that called her book a lush debut, an astonishing addition to World War II and Native American literature that sings on every level. Netta Ulibi, NPR News.
0: That story originally aired on NPR's All Things Considered in 2020. Here's Annette Sanook Clapsaddle reading the opening of her novel, Even As We Breathe. It's from the perspective of the main character, a 20-year-old man who leaves his home on the Koala Boundary to find summer work at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville in the 40s.
12: About the place, when I take you there or when you find it on your own, just know that what the old folks say is true. This land is ours because of what is buried in the ground, not what words appear on a paper. But also know this, what is buried in the ground isn't always what you think. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the story, the beginning of all of us who call ourselves homo sapiens. Fitting, I guess, that what I found buried, just as I was trying to figure out how to become a man and still be human, was the very thing that threatened to take it all away. Just when I began to see what taking control of our own life might look like, I realized I was not who I thought, and neither was this place. That summer in 1942, when I met her, really met her, before I found myself in a white man's cage and entangled in the barbed wire that destroyed my father, I left the cage of my home in Cherokee, North Carolina. I left these mountains that both hold and suffocate, and went to work at the pinnacle of luxury and privilege, Astral's Grove Park Inn and Resort. I guess I had convinced myself that I could become fortunate by proximity, escape Uncle Bud's tirades and my grandmother Lishi's empty kitchen cabinets just by driving a couple of hours up the road. It sounded good to tell folks I was raising money for college, but the truth was I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't want to do it there anymore. And if I stayed any longer, I would become rooted so deeply, I might as well have been buried.
0: That's Annette Sanook clapsaddle reading from her novel, Even As We Breathe. We've heard stories today from people using creative pursuits to process their lived experiences and the world around them. In some cases, like with Annette Sanuk-Clapsaddle, it's about bringing to light your family and community stories, Or like with John R. Miller, who sings about hard decisions and the toll that life can take. Or Susie Kelly, making zines to mark the passage of time and the evolution of her own art. And in the New River Gorge, we saw how a motivated group of rock climbers could make change so that landmarks and climbing routes aren't remembered by hurtful names anymore. I hope you're finding creative ways to make good sense of life in your world. For me, I've got a couple zines in mind. Maybe see you at the next Zine Fest in Johnson City. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing inside Appalachia this week from WVTF Radio IQ in Roanoke, Virginia, Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and WITF Transforming Health in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John R. Miller, the Smoky Mountain Sirens, West Swing, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.